If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, we're going to start at verse uh, 28 and we get to verse 44. When we did um, the sin series and then the Jesus teaches series inside the book of Mark, I was really fond of the prefatory statement that the little caveats that I would give you before every sermon. And so we haven't done that in a while. I'm not going to really give you a caveat this morning or, uh, but I will make just one prefatory comment before we start. We're talking today about the love of God and then us loving him and us loving each other. Now it would take probably around 30 to 50 million years to, to like really like get to the depth of what that means. This is, we only have like 30 minutes to do that this morning. So we won't be doing that. So my, my, A.W. Tozer said in um, The Knowledge of the Holy, like trying to explain the love of God is like a, like a kid reaching for a star. Like he'll never, ever grasp it. However, by the kid reaching for the star, he can point the direction of the star and where it's at in the sky. And that's our hope. That's my hope today. I will never be able to fully plummet the depths of God's love in one sermon, but I hope to point uh, to the direction of that love. And that's what I really want to do this morning. So let me read verses 28 through 44. And then, um, and then I'll pray and ask God for a lot of help this morning. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up to Jesus and, and heard them disputing with one another. Jesus was been, have been arguing now for chapter and a half. And seeing that he answered, that Jesus answered all the questions really well, he wanted to ask him his own question. So the scribe comes to Jesus and he asks him, which commandment is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answered, most, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding and with all of, your, all of one's strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, which was kind of going on in the background, being in the temple. And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? And a great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting into the offering money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than those who are contributing to the offering box, all those who are contributing to the offering box. 
For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That's our text this morning. Let's pray. God, I, this morning or this afternoon, desire more than, more than anything to be faithful to your character and who you are and what you've done, and to be faithful to your word, God. And I confess that I cannot do that apart from your help. I can't do that apart from your power, the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, now that you would use this time to teach us about the love of God, the love that you have for us, how you have revealed yourself to us. And I know that there are many of us, Lord, who say that we love you. But it doesn't look like we love you. And there are many of us that do great things for you. But without love. So I pray you bring us all back to that place where we understand your love for us. And from that place, Lord, love. We want to approach you like the scribe, the scribe approached you, knowing that you have, you answer all questions well, and you can even handle even the deepest questions that we have. And like this poor widow, giving all that she had, that's, that's how we want to approach you, Lord, so help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been in the book of Mark now for some time. We're actually coming to the end of the book of Mark. We'll be finishing the book of Mark on Easter Sunday. And we've been saying that in this book, we come face to face with the real and the authentic Jesus. That's what this book does. Mark puts front and center in the story of Jesus who he is, what he has come to accomplish. We've we've said that this book is a very fast-paced, like it reads like an action movie, a very fast-paced book of Christology, showing us who Christ is, his nature and his work, and what he has come to accomplish. And right now, currently, we're in the the controversy portion of the narrative of of Mark. And in the the controversy portion, it's where Jesus has arrived into Jerusalem during Passover. And knowingly, he knows this, no one else knows this, he knows that he's entering the final week of his life. No one else really knows this, but Jesus knows this full well. And as he enters into Jerusalem, Jesus is engaged in non-stop challenge and debate with these religious leaders inside the temple. So as soon as he enters into the temple, he's in nonstop debate with the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes, all of them just kind of berate him with all of these questions. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how the Sanhedrin came up to Jesus to challenge him about where he gets his authority. They walked up to Jesus like, who do you think, who do you think you are? Where do you get the authority to forgive sin, or to turn over tables in the temple? Who gives you the right and the authority? Who do you think you are? The Pharisees and the Herodians come up to him. We saw this last week and try to trap him in talking about the division between church and state on how do do you balance being obedient to the state laws and obedient to God's laws? Who do we give to? Caesar or God? What do we do here, Jesus? And then the Sadducees come up to him and try to make him look stupid by asking him a silly question about the resurrection. 
And all of these religious and governmental leaders tried to trap Jesus. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to trap him. They tried to shut him up. They tried to ruin his reputation. And if you were to get all these guys and these people in one room, what they all had in common was that they had, all of them, had tremendous power. They all had tremendous power. They held great weight in society. And Jesus was a threat to their power. So they wanted to shut Jesus up. They wanted to get rid of Christ. And finally here, we have this final question, this final test from this scribe. Now, the scribe approaches Jesus, but he doesn't approach Jesus as a group like the Pharisees or the the Herodians or the Sanhedrin. He just comes by himself. A single man, he approaches Jesus and he has a question. Now, a scribe, normally the scribes in Jesus didn't play well. They didn't get along that well. But this scribe is different. He walks up to Jesus and a scribe was trained in the law of God. He was an expert in interpretation of the word of God. Not only do they know the word of God backward and forward, they can memorize, they memorize the whole, the whole of the, the sacred scriptures. They can memorize them. They knew them back and forth. Not only did they know the scriptures, but they knew the interpretation of the scriptures. They knew what they meant. And so they would always, always argue, okay, what is the greatest command? What is the whole of the law? What is the single most important section of God's word? They would always have these arguments. And so this scribe went to Jesus and asked him that same question. Now, I might be probably getting too too hot and heavy too soon here, but I'm going to do it anyway. As a San Franciscan or someone who lives in the Bay Area or you live around here, I can probably guess most of us don't like the commands of God. We don't necessarily love the law of God. If I said that God's law requires you, requires you, I wish I had time to make eye contact with every person in this room, but I don't. So if I went around like the the, the law of God, the word of God requires you to do this and to not do that. Like, to have a, the, the, the scriptures call us to have a very strict sex ethic. And there's actually biblical standards on who you date and who you do not date. And how much you drink and what you say and what you don't say. And what you do with your money. The Bible has guidelines, standards, laws of God that deal with these sort of things. Most of us. Most of our friends, most of our colleagues would think that is exactly why I don't go to church. That is exactly why I don't adhere my life to organized religion, because there are too many rules. But if I said, listen, good, mo- good afternoon, everybody. Let me tell you this. It's all about love. You're like, OK, now you're talking. <laughs> I could I could take that on the road. OK, that'll preach anywhere. It's all about love. God loves you. You're to love him. You're to love each other. All you need is love. Okay, I know that there's so many corny music titles. They stole them all. So this, I'm just pretty much going to be quoting um, songs this whole sermon. Like all you, that's all you need is to love each other. That's it. Love, love, love. Now that's something that anyone can get behind. Do you know why we all can get behind love? Because we love love. Everybody loves love. And you know why we love love? Because we define what love means. 
Love is completely subjective. We define love. When we love something, we know when we love something. When we don't love something, we know when we don't love something. We know when we're done loving something. We define love. We control its meaning. We make up its rules. So if I just walked up and said, hey guys, love God, you're like, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. Everyone in here would agree with that. Most of this city, most of this state, most of this nation would agree. It's all about just love each other and love God. It was like, yeah, I could get behind that. But what Jesus does here is actually rather shocking because he does say it's all about love. That's what he says here. He said, hey guys, it's all about love. But then he defines love. He says that love is the law of God, but he also says the law of God is love. Meaning, if you boil down all the commands of God, all of them, it's love. But you, do you want to know what it means to love? Look at the law. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, how does Jesus say this? There's three ways that I want to look at this. Again, this is not exhaustive at all. But this is the three ways that I want to consider, what three things I want to consider from this text. A proclamation, a response, and an act. We see a proclamation of Jesus, then a response to that proclamation, and then it ends with an act, kind of embodying what Jesus is talking about. So first, a proclamation. After Jesus has been answering very wisely all the questions thrown at him, being able to answer everyone's questions. This is very important. The scribe that walks up to Jesus and asks him, what's the greatest commandment, has been observing how Jesus has, has brilliantly and very, and using a lot of wit, able to answer everyone's question, no matter what question it is. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What about the resurrection? Who gives you the authority? He's been seeing Jesus answer these questions so well. So he's like, I, I want to ask him a question. So he walks up to Jesus and, he's, and he asks him this question because he knows that Jesus is able to answer all of these questions. He's able to answer even my questions. And he is. And I want you to understand this, that God is not afraid of your questions at all. He's not intimidated by them. He's not afraid of them. And I believe that he has the answers for them. The scribe asks the most important question any scribe worth his salt would ask. What commandment is the greatest of all commands? What command trumps and supersedes everything that everyone has to obey, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile? What command of God trumps them all? Take the whole law of God, the whole word of God, and what God requires, and boil it down to one thing, Jesus. And look how Jesus starts to answer this question. He starts with what's known as the Shema. The this, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, reciting more, recited morning and evening by observant Jews, it means to hear or listen. That's the first word of the Shema is Shema. Deuteronomy 6, it says, and this is what Jesus quotes. What's the greatest commandment? And this is how he starts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is interesting because Jesus doesn't start with a command. Hey, what's the greatest command? And he starts in with a command. Jesus starts with a proclamation. Jesus starts by affirming who God is. This is vastly important. Before you know what God, maybe you grew up in a place, maybe a church, maybe not a church, maybe a, a home or, 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 or a neighborhood where 
to get to know God, the only way you got to know God is by what God wanted from you. You just learned his commands first. Jesus doesn't start that way. He's like, before I tell you what God requires, let me tell you who God is. Because without that context, you won't understand and won't get why he requires this. If you understand who God is, then you understand why he requires this. So he starts like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus proclaims and affirms who God is before he answers what he requires. A.W. Tozer, again in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says that, quote, We tend by our secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We have this way of what we believe about God mentally. That's where our soul gravitates towards. And our souls won't adhere to God and his commands until we know his character. We won't adhere rightly to God until we know his character. I believe this is very true. That's why it's important that we have the right understanding of who God is as he has revealed himself to us. See, many of us, I would say probably most of us, affirm that God is love. We, we love that. That's, that, that's what we, God is love. If someone's going to ask you to define who God is, you're like, God is love. Well, yes, God is love. That is true. However, love is something true of God, but it does not, nor can it completely define who God is. God is also holy. He's faithful. He's just. God is merciful and he's light and truth and God is a God of wrath. He is all of these things at the same time because the Lord is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I think for the most part, you and I don't have a problem believing in, a, in the love of God. If I, if I was to say, hey, everyone, God loves you. Most of our reaction might be, well, of course God loves me. I mean, what's not to love? I mean, have you seen me? I, 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 I'm, I'm nice and fairly cute and I'm okay and you're okay and God loves everyone. And we believe that. We like that. We're like, God is love. Yeah. Yeah, we're, God is love. We have a far more difficulty believing in the justice of God or the wrath of God or the immutable truthfulness of God. See, because God is immutable, he always acts like his true self, always. And because he's one, hero is the Lord, God, or God is one, complete unity with himself, he never suspends one of his attributes in order to exercise another. He's always just and always love at the same time. God doesn't stop being loving to exercise justice, but God doesn't stop being just to exercise wrath. God is all of it, at the same time, the Lord is one. Not only did Jesus say that, but the scribe interpreted what Jesus said and said, you are right, the Lord is one, he's the only one. Jesus says, ah, you're right too. I mean, they were like having a really good dialogue here. It's like, you're right, oh yeah, no, you're right. Not only is the Lord one, but he's the only one. Jesus like, ah, yeah, very good. So they were just, and this is, this, this is a really good, there was a really good dialogue between Jesus and the scribe. This is what Jesus is saying, that God is one. Now, what does all this mean? Jesus says, before I sum up and boil down what God requires, you must get, or at least begin to get, who God is. 
that he is the Lord and that he is one and he is the only one. Until you get that, you won't begin to understand why he requires or what he requires. See, the law of God begins with worship. If, it, if the law of God began some other way to you, please let, let me set this straight. The law of God begins with worship. The law of God begins with him delivering, him saving, him redeeming. Before the law of God was ever given to the people of Israel, he delivered them from bondage. And he brought them out of that land into another land and then gave them the law. I saved you. So the whole law was this. I love you and I've saved you. And I know the best way for you to live. You won't understand what God requires until you understand who God is. Because the law of God begins with worship. Because if it's true that we are made in God's image, then we will find our fullest meaning our true selves, the more we learn to love and worship the one we were designed to reflect. So Jesus starts with a proclamation. This is who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes into the response. Because God is one, because he is the Lord, because of that, this is the response to who God is. That God that is the Lord God. That God who is one. That God who is love. And the response is to love. And it says this. You shall love. This is what Jesus says. You shall love the Lord your God with all. Now that, that Greek word um, with isn't like with your heart as in it's the instrument, but it's the source. You're to love God with the source of your heart. From your heart. From your soul. From your mind. And from your strength. With everything. All the capacity that you have, you're to love God. The second is this, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I have to confess something to you. Um, I wrote hate, but I wouldn't say hate. I was pretty um, emotional when I wrote this, but I'd say dislike. I don't necessarily like talking about love. It's not my favorite thing to talk about love. This is why. I've always, I haven't hated it, but I haven't love talking about love. This is why. Because love is such a slippery word. It's so evasive. You can't nail, what does that word even mean anyways? When I say I love God, most of us say that we do. Most of us in here say, I love God. Yeah, I love God. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Tell me what, what does it mean that you love God? Well, I mean, it's like, mm. it's normally sound effects. Like, it's like, mm, uh, 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 you know, loving God. Like, well, what, what does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, I just, uh, it's there. Like, there. Like, okay. Ex- define it. What does that mean? I, I've sat with so many people in meetings, some in counseling after church on Sundays, where they're doing things in their lives that clearly, that clearly God hates, that clearly breaks God's heart but they say, I love God. You do? Yeah, I love him. But I, I kind of want to do this thing. Do you, you love God? Yes, I do. Okay, if you love God, then keep destroying your life and destroying the life of other people around you. As long as there's still a hint of affection towards God, you're okay. See, we, we know intuitively that's wrong. Like we're like, okay, that's not right. That's not the way that we're all to live. We know intuitively that that's wrong. See, 
Christian love does not mean simple emotion. Christian love is not simply emotion. It's not simply like, okay, I, 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 just, I just love God because why? Because I just feel it. I feel like I love God. C.S. Lewis has said in his book, Mere Christianity, Mere Christianity, love in the Christian sense is not a state of feelings, but the will of God. Love in the, in the Christian sense is not just a state of feelings. It's not like, I love God. How do you know? Because I love him. I mean, I just feel it. This affection, I just like, I love him. It's not just simply loving him by feelings. It's by the will, by doing what pleases God. Love is action, not just raw emotion. So loving God should look like something. Let me say this again because I want you to understand this. Loving God should look like something. It should look like what he requires. That's a very hard thing to say in this town. That God actually requires something. And to love him means to start to assimilate my life, start to bring my life under his authority. I don't know about that. Love is more than raw emotion. It's actually action. Okay, so you're saying, okay, so you're saying that love is doing. Doing, doing, doing. It's entirely an act of the will. Is that what I'm saying? That love is just doing. Having this outward appearance of love and doing good things for God. So doing good things for God, if I serve enough at the church, if I give enough money away, then I'm doing good, right? Well, not entirely. This is why love is so slippery. Because that's not entirely true. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that if I speak with the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, if I I have all the prophetic powers and understand everything there is to understand about God, and I can have faith to move a mountain. I can give away all my money to the poor, and I can even become a martyr. But if I do not have love, I am nothing. So you can will to obey God. You can do all the right things and still miss loving God. And thus still miss loving others. So how do you do this? You're saying that it's not just a will. It's not just doing things, but it's affection. But it's not just affection. It's not just feeling I love God. But it's actually doing something. And I would say yes to both of them. I know it's a very difficult thing. So let me try to break it down as simply as I can. This is the best definition of love from this text I can give you right now. It might grow as we grow, but this is all I have right now. Love for God is affection towards God and action towards his will. Love of God is affection towards God. It is this, inter, it's this inner personal passion to love God. But it also displays itself outwardly in action towards the will of God. At the same time, the way that, that Jesus answers the scribe's question is actually amazing. Jesus, what he does here when he answers the scribe's question, he simultaneously avoids the danger of mysticism and humanism. I think these are two very great temptations for the modern believer or the modern church. Jesus here avoids mysticism and humanism in his answer to the scribe. Let me explain what I mean by that. He avoids mysticism. Basically, mysticism means a detached and disembodied love for God. That's like, I love God. How? Because I do. How? Because, mm. 
That's what that means, okay? I just, I just feel it. I just do. I love God. It's just like this mystical thing. Like, I love God. Yeah, I love God. Well, how do you know? I just do. Just love. See, this keeps us. Jesus says he connects it to loving people because it keeps us from saying, I love God, but it doesn't look like anything. We can't do that. There are many of us who say that, that we love God, but it doesn't look like we love God. Jesus says here that loving God looks a certain way. So what does that look like? Now hear me out because it's going to sound a little weird at first. It looks like obeying the law. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. Okay, I thought we were New Testament. Hello, I thought we were like the law is gone. Hear me out. Listen, this is what Jesus says here. He says, the law of God was really about, it wasn't necessarily about thou shalt not, but thou shalt love. That's what the law of God means. It's not thou shalt not, it's thou shalt love. The thou shalt not pointed forward to thou shalt love. Let me give you a couple of examples. Thou shalt not murder doesn't just mean not killing someone out of cold blood. Listen, dude, I didn't kill you, so we're good, right? That's That's not what the law of God pointed towards. It actually pointed forward toward loving people. Loving even your enemy, going the second mile and praying for those who persecute you, Sermon on the Mount. See how not murdering didn't just mean, hey, I didn't murder someone, God, I'm in. He's like, no, did you love people? Did you go the extra mile for people? It points forward to loving. The same thing with thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery wasn't just about not cheating on your wife or on your spouse. It pointed forward to loving. You're like, listen, I haven't cheated on you, girl. We're all good, right? Like, no, did you love her? Did you love him? And you're just not like not cheating. Like, hey, I didn't cheat on you. Just consider yourself lucky. Like, but did you love? It points forward. And we all understand this. It's not just not cheating. It's loving. Are you loving your wife? Sacrificing, showing affection towards your wife. That's what it means. That's what the love of God points forward to. So when Jesus sums up all the law as love, it makes total sense. How do I, how do I fulfill the law of God to not commit adultery? Love, love God, and love the person you're married to. How do I, how do I fulfill the law of God not to murder? Love, love God, and love your enemies. How do I, how do I do the one where it's like not stealing? Love, Don't steal from people because you love them. All of the commands of God are fulfilled in love. And so what does loving God look like? Well, then the reverse is true. It points back. It means obeying the law. It means obeying the commands of God. It means taking the commands of God serious. That's what love looks like. It's not just like, I love. I just feel it. I love it. But it's actually doing something. One last example. Thou shalt not have, thou shalt not have no other gods beside me. The first commandment wasn't about not having man-made statues that you bowed down to. But it pointed forward to loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. See, love, loving God is invisible. It's an internal passion of the soul. The way it comes to expression is when you love others. 
when you, when you express it outwardly towards people. So loving others is this outward manifestation, this visible expression, this practical demonstration of loving God. Therefore, it's the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament teaches. Loving God looks like something. It looks like affection. Loving God looks like worship and obedience to his word. And it looks like sacrifice. That's what love looks like. Jesus is saying love looks like something. And it's not just inward, but it's outward. But it's not just outward, it's also inward. If I said I loved my wife but never listened to her and never showed her affection, never protected her, never took her advice, never wanted to be around her, that's not love. I can say I love her all I want, but the fact is that I don't. But I do. And I'm all the, I try to do all those things. <laughs> Caveat. The brilliance of Jesus' answer is also that he avoids the danger of humanism as well. I think this is, again, brilliant of Jesus. The priority is important. Love God and love others. Keep that priority there. That's important. This keeps us from acts toward human, acts towards humanity without reference to God. This keeps us from acting out towards humanity without any reference to God. Now, as a pastor, I will say that I, I love, I love people. And telling people the truth is really, it's not, it doesn't come easy for me. I don't like, like sitting people down and go, let me tell you the truth here about you. That's not fun to me. But what's, what's more unfun than that is disobeying God. What's more wrong than that is disobeying who God is. So if I changed how I related to people by ditching what's true about God, that's wrong. And so Jesus says this, love God and he becomes your reference to love people. So you could love your enemies because you love God. You can also confront your friends because you love God. See, when you confront your friends, that's not easy to do. If you've ever been confronted by a roommate or if you've ever confronted a roommate about something going on or a friend or in a quote-unquote accountability partner or someone in your if you've confronted them about some sort of sin. The only way you can do that is if you want to please God because it's not fun for the person you walk up to them and like, let me tell you something really difficult. And they're like, oh, I thought you loved me. Why would you ever say that to me? Like, you're right. I do love you. I'm not going to say anything like that again. But, but do you love God more? So can you approach that person with humility, forgiveness, grace, and truth? Loving God allows us the resources to love people rightly. God becomes your reference point. See, it's love for God that releases the love of God. That's what Jesus is saying. It's love for God. I love God, and it releases the love of God. I can love people. Then, at the end of this section, we're given an illustration, an act, to kind of embody this. I think this is a brilliant place for this to happen. Um, Jesus is in the temple, okay? So he's in the temple, and as he's teaching... You have to understand, when he starts saying these things, there are actually scribes around him, okay? There are people that he's describing that are, that, that are around him. So look at, look at verse 41. Everyone at that time perceived the teachers of the law 
the Pharisees, the scribes, as to be the poster children of those who love God. You, they love God. How do you know they love God? Look at how long they pray. They pray for the days. This guy prayed for four hours. He loves God. Look at how much money these people give. Look at how much of the Bible these people know. They must love God. But Jesus says, it takes more than that to love me. And this is what he says. He says in verse, in verse 38, as he's teaching, he looks around and, and, and verse 30 says, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Now, again, scribes are walking around who like to walk around in long robes. They're walking around in long robes, like presently. So Jesus is like, beware of the scribes walking around long robes. And the guys are like grabbing their robes like, oh, whatever, you know, like they're there as Jesus is like pointing them out. Okay. Who like walking around in long robes and then love greetings in the marketplace. And like, hey, hey, scribe, hey, Pharisee, what up, man? You know, that sort of thing. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And then he just grills them. Who devour widows' houses like wolves. Who when a wife loses her husband, these scribes swoop in. Say, you don't have anyone to protect you. You don't have anyone to manage the house. We'll do it. Give us the money. And then with the money, they buy long robes. And with the money, they decorate the big, that big, gorgeous temple that Jesus is overturning. And with the money, they'll even pay Judas to betray Jesus. And Jesus says, this is the height of hypocrisy. This is the height of religion. This is everything that Jesus stands against. And then, as this is happening, to keep fresh in your mind, they devour, devour widows' houses. He says, and then he sat down opposite the treasury, and they watched and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Now, the offering boxes then were like these, these uh, trumpet sh- brass-shaped, like, trumpet thingies. And they would be mounted on the wall, and people would put their... They didn't have visa then. They didn't have, like, they didn't have dollar... They had coins, and so when they threw them in this brass trumpet thing, it would make a lot of sound. And so people would get, this would get kind of absurd because people would bring bags of money to offer to God and they would just pour it in. And as it poured in, it would like, cling, 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 like Vegas, like win a win a chicken dinner over here. And everybody's looking and he's like, oh yeah, you're like pouring it all in. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, look at how much money this guy's giving. And it's like just pouring it all in. And Jesus is watching all of this take place. He's sitting down. He's like, look at that guy. Look at that guy. And then this woman walks in and it's a poor widow. And you have to ask yourself this question. Is she made poor because the scribes robbed her? That's what you're like. like is, Mark doesn't tell us, but how is this woman poor? She's a poor widow. Jesus says, beware of these scribes. They rob and destroy widows' houses. This is what happened. And she came up and she put two small copper coins and they would have made a sound. They would make clink, clink. That's it. Everyone else is like big. He's, these the, the, two small copper coins. These were the smallest coins in circulation. Both of them equaled a penny. She puts these inside this, the offering box. And Jesus called over his disciples, like almost showing this girl off. Like, come, come here. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. More. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Literally in the Greek, that last phrase is she gave her even her whole life. See the difference between 
everyone there putting on a show and this woman is that she loved God not just outwardly, but inwardly. Everyone else was giving because they were giving out of their abundance. They were giving out of their margin. They were giving out of their surplus. So when they gave to God, they didn't eat any less. They didn't dress any more humble. They didn't change their life at all. They gave and that was it. But this woman, because of the love that she had for God, gave everything. Even if it was the scribe's fault that made her poor, she still loved God. And she still gave everything. Her whole life. And Jesus is saying, you want to see love? You want to see the embodiment of what it is to love inwardly and outwardly? Look at this poor widow who gave her life. In a couple of chapters, we're going to meet a, a gal who goes to Jesus and breaks her bottle of perfume, which would have been her, like her dowry, worth so much money, over Jesus' feet and then anoints his feet with this costly perfume. And Jesus is just impressed with this woman as with the, the poor widow. One's worth way more than the other in terms of money. But what Jesus loves is the cost it costs the giver. You know why Jesus is so, God is so impressed when we give? I'm not just talking about money here. I'm talking, are we, are, are, do we love God enough to where it, it's, it's demonstrably changing the way that we live? The reason why this shows a heart that's been transformed, it, it shows that a heart actually gets, you actually begin to understand what God has done for you. Because this poor widow actually is a foreshadowing of someone who's going to, do the same thing in a couple days. Who was rich but became poor. Who gave his, all he had, even his life. It's foreshadowing Jesus on the cross. Who would give up his life. Who would become poor for our sake. Who would die our death. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater love than he who laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus said... I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. See, when we talked about how God is one and how God is just and a God of wrath and a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of truth and a God of light, all of these things, and we're like, but how is he all at the same time? The, the, where we see all of the attributes of God collide in our own eyes, where we can see it, where the justice of God collides with the love of God, collides with the wrath of God, collides with the with the, the, the reconciliation of God, collides with the faithfulness of God and the patience of God, is at the cross. Because at the cross of Christ, all of the attributes of God collide to where humanity can see it. It's on open display. That is the justice of God. That is the wrath of God. That is the love of God. That is the faithfulness of God. That is the mercy of God. That is the patience of God. And we see all of that there in Jesus who gave his life for us. And when we see that, that's the only way. Can I tell you, please, if you're going, okay, I, I know how to love God now. Can you please start here? Can you start with knowing who God is? Start there. There's time. There's patience. Just get, get to know God. Surrender your life to, to Jesus and like, I just want to know you. And then from there, let him teach you how to make that some of us need to, to really repent because we, we love, we, we're loving God with all our, mm, our emotion. But that's it. Some of us 
are just like, well, if I do this and I do that and I do that, then I'm accepted. Instead of bringing both those things together and like, it meets at the cross. I believe in Jesus. And from there, he changes me. And from there, I have the power then to live the way that he wants me to live. Outside of that, I have no power. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you are our great Savior and God who became poor for our sake, who gave sacrificially for us. And we want to be people who reflect that, God. We want to be people who give, who are generous with their lives, who, who look differently because of your love. That's transformative. And so I know that some of us in here need to repent. Well, there's no doubt that it's a very difficult thing to stand in this, um, in this city and say there's a standard. But it's also, but it's very easy to say there's a standard, but every single one of us miss it. And we need grace. So Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would draw us closer to that grace found and the one true God. I pray that there would be repentance and that would be a, just a sweet word in this church and restoration and reconciliation and wholeness that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen.